Hi, good morning, everybody. This is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it is our privilege and our honor to have with us one more time, Jay O'Connor. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to see you again. I was looking and we we're chatting before we started that this is nearly one year exactly since we talked last time about your role in emergency management and in the Canadian nuclear laboratories industry. So, wow, I guess nothing's really changed since then. Sadly, no, not a lot. Um, we were just talking about this beforehand, but it's a, it's a very almost unique experience for people uh, in the emergency management world, the emergency response world. Um, you know, we, we tend to deal with short-lived, uh, high-intensity scenarios, mm. right? So whether that's the firefighter on the street uh, or even, you know, emergency management for large events, there's that big push, run the event, shut it down, um, and then move on to the next thing. And so this this prolonged event has, has really... Uh, really taking its toll on a lot of people in the industry. It kind of rubs against the grain of the individuals, I think, or a lot of the individuals that get into this that are used to that, you know, short, hard sprints, go hard at this, and then we change our attention and move on to something different. And, you know, one week it's a fire and the next it's a flood. And so this ongoing routine is is uh, is wearing, wearing thin at this point. <laughs> right. And when we spoke last time, your role was preparing and managing the safety as the site that you were on was being decommissioned. That's correct. Yeah, and I'm still in the same position. Um, obviously, COVID threw a bit of a monkey wrench into the schedule last year and, and caused some delays as, as, like everyone else, we had to wrap our heads around how to continue to perform in, in, uh, in this COVID environment, if you will. Um, and then with all of the changing rules coming out from, you know, the, the health authorities and people like that, it's trying to understand how do those rules apply to us as a, you know, a, a decommissioning site as opposed to, you know, a lot of the rules are geared towards the public facing industry. So services and, and yeah. uh, suppliers and things like that. So for us being, you know, kind of a private site, we really don't have public access. It's all pretty uh, uh, rigorously controlled, how do we take those rules and interpret them and make it work in our environment so that we can keep, you know, moving towards our goals as a company, but at the same time, making sure our employees are safe and even more importantly, making sure that our employees feel that they're safe. So, mm. And have you been working from home since, since we spoke last year? I actually haven't. I was one of the uh, one of the few that uh, was uh, stayed at the site throughout. I kind of became the hands and feet for most of my department, the the emergency preparedness and uh, emergency response department that I'm a part of. Um, so, given my role with uh, the situation, I, I stayed on site and did the running around. It wasn't until the last couple of weeks here that uh, um, I've actually had the opportunity to come and work from home, as you can probably tell from the lovely artwork in the background that uh, I'm in my home office here. So. Uh, but yeah, through the event, it was important for continuity for our guards just to be there to answer questions, to deal with those sort of what if scenarios that popped up that we just hadn't expected yet to make sure there was a, um, a consistent presence on site. So, mm. you know, I, I thought you're taking up art as a hobby. there. That's <laughs> my therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said a year, nearly a year ago, uh, you are the what if guy. And I, I wrote that down. And um, so what are some of those what-ifs that, you know, you had planned for, prepared for, and maybe COVID had brought those into reality for you that you've had to be dealing with? 
Well, I don't remember if we talked about this last time. We, we may have, but uh, it was interesting. The, the last emergency um, scenario I ran for my emergency operations center team, our EOC staff, was a, uh, a zombie apocalypse. And, and it, I ran it on um, Halloween, um, October 31st in 2019. And so I thought, well, we're doing doing a Halloween scenario. Let's have a little bit of fun with it. And so I kind of made light of it, but it was an excellent excellent way of looking at pandemics. Little did I know how appropriate the timing was for that event. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that, you know, we ad- identified some some issues and gaps with less to do with our our um, how we would respond. I mean, I have a pretty good and capable team there, and, and we always train to kind of that all hazards approach. So we don't tend to um, drill into specific incidents, but look more at how do we manage things. Um, but one of the things that came up was our sort of dependence on the physical environment to run our emergencies. Um, and that's something that has changed significantly in the last 12 months uh, for most industries around the world is this, this shift to the virtual environment. And now how do we, how do we effectively adapt things like an emergency operations center and, and provide effective command and control or provide effective command so we get back control of an event when we're scattered all over in different houses and different areas and different towns um, on different platforms and how do we make that work? So that was, that was kind of a, um, a focus of this last year. And that was one of those lessons learned that, that came out of that and then cascaded very quickly into the real life events we were facing early last year. So. And what are some of those things that you've had to put in place? That's not business as usual. Um. Well, from uh, an emergency operations center perspective, um, you know, a lot of it just came down to the, a lot of the technology was already there. There was just a lack of understanding around how to effectively use it. Um, and I find that is very often the case. Um, you know, one of the things that we'll probably talk about today is, you know, what can what can the research industry, the academia maybe do to support in field folks? And as I was thinking about that, you know, the same old um, thoughts came to mind. What's the first thing that always gets criticized in any emergency exercise or event? You know, communications is typically top of that, top of the pile, or at least top three, right? And I thought about that, and I thought, how often we've actually had more capable tools at our fingertips than users? Um, and so I think what COVID has done, although it has refined some of those tools, it's forced us to actually take a look in the toolbox and dust off some of the things that maybe are sitting there and say, you know what, we can't get away with not knowing how to do this properly, how to effectively do a three-way call with a cell phone and bring another person in. You know, what does that mean if I hang up to the other, you know, so just all these questions that go along with that. And so the opportunity to test and play with those things. Um, in a previous role, um, not at the nuclear site, but in my last role with uh, one of the cities here in Canada, um, we actually had one of the top radio systems in the country, a real Cadillac radio system that enabled fire, police, EMS, our transit people, our public works people, key stakeholders outside of the city, uh, corrections and different groups like that could all talk together on the same radio system. Um, like I say, very high end, fully integrated, far ahead of its time. And yet we would often go to fire calls and an individual you know, fire guy would hand a radio over to the EMS guy so that they could listen to what was going on, not because the system was not capable of doing it, but because that training piece was what was really missing in and behind the technology. So it's it's that balance between training and technology. And as we take a leap forward in the one area, we need to make sure we go back and bring the other leg of that up. Otherwise, we, uh, you know, we can lose balance, so to speak. So. Mm. 
Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great understanding. So you mentioned about research, and it's one of the things we we're going to talk about today, about how, um, you know, where, where are some of those gaps so that training and development side around the technology, what are some other areas that you think research can really assist? Um, I have to admit, I, uh, I struggled with this question a little bit. Because um, like I say, I kept coming up with things, oh, you know, it'd be nice to have this. And uh, and then I recognized, you know, that, that probably actually already exists. I need to just go and, you know, figure out how to integrate it. Um, one of the things I thought of right off the hop, the way this event evolved is very different than the way most emergency events evolve for us. Uh, for and I, by us, I mean people in the the incident command, um, whether at the street level or or at the strategic level, the EOC level. Usually, there's a fairly rapid onset, even with a flood that you can you can see coming. There's a snowball builds up, and then you're into an emergency response. And this mm -hmm. one was a little bit tricky because we never really hit critical mass as far as emergency response goes. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm sure the people in the health industry absolutely hit that early on and have been there right the way through. But for somebody like myself, sort of riding on the edge of this event, we never really did hit the point where we triggered an EOC activation, where we went full emergency response. And I think this is really where the business continuity role comes to play. Um, and business continuity, I've heard it described as it's it's the opposite side of the same coin, right? And and often it's just a different perspective looking at an emergency event and and um, but I think as an industry, there's a there's a still a gap. Um, quite often, you have business continuity or you have emergency management, um, and how to marry the two processes to integrate. Um, whether that's how do you bring business continuity into the EOC during an emergency event and apply what they understand about continuity of operations and stuff to your response model. Um, or whether that's in a situation like this, where you take an organization that uh, uh, business continuity, something that as a company, they just started doing recently at our head office. Um, and, and how do we, we integrate that into a response that isn't fully an emergency response, but relies very heavily on that, but in an organization where the structure is already set up for an emergency response as opposed to a business continuity. So I, I think there's some, there's some links there, and I think there's probably smarter people than me out there that have already looked at that and have a pretty good understanding of it. But that's something that I personally would would benefit from, you know, having something I could read or a workshop I could take a look at or something that would would talk about the, the integration of, of one into the other uh, of those two industries and fields. That's really good. So communications or understanding the tech that we have, you said we have often more tech than we do users who know how to effectively use it. Yeah. Um, the integration, business continuity with emergency response models. Anything else? Uh, the one other thing that came to mind, um, and this is really not COVID specific, but it's something that uh, myself and some of my colleagues at other other sites uh, that I interact with have been struggling with a little bit, um, is effective personnel accountability. Um, you know, it used to be you'd have a whiteboard in the office with an in and out marker and people, you train people to write down what time they were going to be or where they were off to and move that. But that seems to really be a foreign concept to people, right? So, and, and I don't want to go all the way and say, let's start chipping people or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But as a site with multiple buildings, um, 
with some very unique hazards that can force people to, you know, have to stay inside the facility or evacuate a specific facility and go somewhere else. How do we effectively track our personnel around the site to know where is somebody at this moment in time? Is everybody out of this structure? Is everybody indoors? Is there somebody down? Um, and like I say, there's tools out there to do that. Um, but is there a cost-effective way of doing that on a site like ours where, let's say, again, we're a decommissioning site. There's no appetite mm. to start putting card readers in on every door in every building so that mm. you, know, you card your way through everywhere. So in the absence of that, is there, is there an effective way of setting up proper accountability um, as for, for those types of situations? I'll, I'll just mention in addition to that, Normally we have, I don't know, different places call them different things, but we, we had an officer in charge program and an emergency steward. Some play, people call them fire wardens or floor marshals or different things like that. But the idea is that there's somebody assigned to be responsible for a given area of an office building or, or any kind of a building. So if there is a fire alarm, they go and check a certain area before they leave. So we, we had that built in attempt at accountability. But now as we're decommissioning the site and we're getting a far more transient population and COVID has actually pushed a lot of the people off site that don't need to move around the site. So they're working from home anyways. So we have less of those people that are static in the office environment that we can lean on for that kind of accountability role. So how in that situation, again, do we do we effectively implement uh, an accountability system so that we, we can feel confident at the end of the, the day and our employees can feel confident that we have you know, we know where they are and we'll take care of them uh, mm. during an emergency event. So again, as a site, I can quickly tell you exactly who's on site, but we're a big site. There's lots of buildings that doesn't help a lot when it comes down to building specific emergencies. So I'll just throw that out there as another, uh, it'd be a, a nice, a, a nice thing to, uh, to have. It would certainly make our job easier. So. Right. I thought when you first started mentioning that, that, you were talking about people being monitored to make sure from a performance management side, they're doing what they need to be doing. But you're actually talking about making sure for you and leadership that you're accountable for your team and knowing where they are and their safety. So that, that pretty much relates, I think, to talking about your incident command process that you use. Mm -hmm. One of the topics we were going to talk about today. So why don't you talk us through that process, the incident command process that you use? All right. Uh, well, we... We use the incident command system, which is based off the the American uh, the FEMA model, the NIM system from down in the states. Um, and Canada's a little divided on this right now, unfortunately. Um, but uh, the ICS system came into Canada, kind of in Western Canada. I think it really originated in British Columbia, and one of the large emergency training institutions there took it, made it their own and, and started pushing this out across Western Canada anyways. And, and that was great. Everybody kind of aligned. Um, and then another part of the company, uh, country, uh, Ontario wanted to take the system and, and really now refine it and make it Canadian, which, which is fine, but they tweaked it. Now it's similar enough that it, it, it'd be like it's speaking a similar language, but with a different regional dialect, you can, you can muddle your way through it. It certainly works, but we've lost one of those fundamental elements of the system, which is that, um, just that clear terminology, this means this across the country kind of thing. So anyways, having said all that, we use the ICS system um, that Western Canada uses uh, because even though our head office is in Ontario and they use the IMS system out there, what they call IMS, 
all of our first responders offsite that we would call in to support us uh, use this language. So it just made sense that we would make sure we're speaking the same language as the boots on the ground. Because ultimately, at my level, at the strategic level, our job is to support the responder on the street. Um, so we need to make sure we know what they're talking and speak the same language. Have so you haven't mandated it. Can I just check? You yeah. haven't mandated it. You're doing this in response to um, the way that the communication happens with the first responders. That's correct. Yeah. So we are mandated to have a system in place. Um, but the choice to go or pursue this model is because that is what's adopted by the emergency services, the frontline responders. And so it just makes sense that we're as consistent with them as we can be. So, um, so now having, having said all of that, and I'm a big, big believer, I was a trainer for ICS in, in uh, Saskatchewan when I was out there, um, believe in the system completely. It's a great system. I will say that when it leaves the street level and enters that strategic EOC level, it becomes a little bit grayer. Now, I know there's purists out there that will, will say, no, you can apply it in every situation. But the challenge becomes, or at least for me, the challenge was as an emergency manager, my job is to take staff whose day-to-day -day job is something completely different um, or, or maybe not even different from what they have to do in an emergency environment, but they don't think emergency, they, they're a purchasing person or they're a logistics guy. And so they think that, right. so how can I take them and slide them into doing a role for me that's not so far removed from what they do on a day-to-day -day basis that they sit there feeling overwhelmed and scrambling and like the ground's been lifted out from under their feet, right? Um, so that's where I say, I, I, I like ICS, I apply the principles of ICS, but there's some elements of the old emergency site management program that we integrate into our model. So from a top-down perspective, you would see ICS. It looks the same, anybody coming in would recognize it. But inside some of those different um, uh, branches in, inside there, the, the, the different sections inside, we've actually adopted some things that look a little bit more like our corporate structure because it just is a better fit for people and it's one less hurdle that they have to cross to switch from their day-to-day -day mindset to an emergency mindset. Um, but again, the first responders, when they look up, they see the system they understand. When an external agency looks in, they see a system they understand. It's those in-between pieces that that we've tweaked a little bit. And I, I think that's realistically the, the best way to to take a tool like this. You never take it and sort of say, we have to force ourselves to fit into this, this hole. You take the system and apply it to your environment. So that's how we have things set up here in, in White Shell. So. Great. You've mentioned about your Cadillac of a radio system, a really top line, good radio system. It made me think about technology and the role of technology and maybe some new discoveries in technology during this time. So tell us about technology and the role that that's played during this last 12 months. Um, well, I mean, we'll start with something like Skype. I mean, just the, the sort of became the basic communications tool for everybody. You know, uh, it, it almost became foreign to me to hear my phone on my desk ring at work because People just automatically assume nobody's there. I'll, I'll call them on Skype, and so this idea of being able to reach out to people and and know where they are and and, and hit them at their desk uh, that changed very quickly. Um, so I, it was a again a great communications tool, the ability to text with people, um, and then Teams came along. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Teams, but Microsoft Teams is the new one and when it came out i took a look at it and i started watching some videos on it so i could understand it and 
man, the lights went on and I was thinking about all these great ways I could apply this in, in my uh, emergency operations center environment. Um, the new online SharePoint program combined with Teams would make a phenomenal uh, a base to build a, a virtual EOC from. Um, but again, some of the struggles are at this point in time, our organization is not yet ready to fully implement these tools. And so I know what they can do, but all of these features are locked out to me at the moment. So, um, so yeah, I, I can't say too much more about them except uh, what I've seen from what they are capable of doing. I think they'll be uh, excellent resources for us. The other thing, and, and this is maybe a little bit of a soapbox for me, so I won't spend much time on it, but one of my challenges has been with even social media in the past is these tools that are designed to bring us together and connect people, I find more often than not actually sacrifice relationship and that feeling of connectedness. Um, so while it's been very good during this emergency that I can reach out, ping people, pull different people into meetings, have these, these conversations, um, I don't normally actually get to use the video function um, just because of the way my computer setup is at work. I have missed that person-to-person -person connection. And emergency management is 90% relationships. It's, it's, it's who you've been able to build that relationship with. It's them having an understanding of who you are and how you do business. So when the chips are down, you can make that call and get things moving quickly. Um, you know, the old expression, the last time or the worst time to exchange business cards is at the scene of an emergency, right? So it, it all comes down to knowing the other players. And I've met a whole lot of people through this, but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup and I don't really know anything about them because you're not able to observe people and, and see what they laugh at, you know, those things, right? So it's been great to have this enhanced communication, but I find again, maybe one of those things that, that uh, contributes to a little bit of that COVID fatigue for some of the people in, in our industry uh, not only has this gone on a long time, but those relationships that, you know, we thrive on typically have, have been somewhat diminished because of because of these new forms of communication and, and the fear of gathering face to face and stuff like that. So. Mm. What is the temperature like over there in terms of you just said the fear of people meeting together? Is it something that people talk about? Um, there's a few people that, that, that we will we'll talk about that, um, but it, along with just about everything else to do with COVID, we, it's, it feels like very unstable ground. On the one hand, it's very, okay, we're still in this, it's the same thing, and just kind of soldier on, soldier through. But at the, on the other hand, there's that unstable element of, you know, we had the first wave and we responded this way, and then when the second wave comes along, there, there was a desire to change our response even though the, the fundamentals that we use to protect ourselves have not changed the, the the provincial and the federal responses have been a little different and then when the third response came along it almost seems like there's there's more differences so you're constantly off balance you know from one week to the next one week you just get an understanding of what the new restrictions are which you can do and can't do and then the following week there's new restrictions been added um and and again, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of fear associated with a, a lack of knowledge. People just didn't know. There wasn't enough information mm. out there. Um, then we moved from that into there was a lot of information out there, but what information do we trust? There was a mm. lot of misinformation, a lot of opinion right. and not a lot of fact that people were. And so part of my job shifting gears became managing the perceptions and managing um, the misinformation and trying to point people to credible sources and stuff like that. And now I'm finding actually as we're into our third wave here in Canada, um, 
And maybe this is that COVID fatigue kicking in in the general populace. But as they're changing their response, people are starting to see that the rules just don't feel like they all make sense anymore. You know, we have a bit of an understanding from phase one, a bit of an understanding from phase two, and or sorry, wave two. And now that we're into wave three, it's like some of the rules don't make sense. So just, just as a for instance, uh, if I want to go see my aunt in her care home, my wife and I can't go together at the same time. So again, no increased risk because we live together in the same household. Um, and I sympathize for the healthcare system. It's just easier to make sweeping statements than try and fine tune rules. I understand that. But as you make rules like this, and I've talked to a lot of people, uh, both in their personal lives and work lives, who are going, why do we have to do this now? It, it doesn't make sense. And we're starting to lose people. So we've almost gone from a fear, um, a fear of the unknown, to a fear of what information is it I should be trusting? Who should I be listening to? And now we're getting into the, well, this doesn't make sense. And, and so people don't want to not do the right thing, but they're also feeling kind of fed up with being told to do stuff that doesn't seem to match what the understanding they've built over the last 12 months says, right? So it, it's definitely a changing landscape. So I would say now I'm dealing a little bit less with the fear and a little bit more with frustration, right? That the, the perception that, that uh, people are having is just, they're done, they're tired of this. And if we could just find a stable ground and say, stand on this rock, it won't move. This is what you need to do and just hold the course. I, I think we'd be a little bit better off, but you know, we, we want to open up freedoms as soon as the numbers are down, but then the numbers go up. We want to close it down. And so there's constant ebb and flow takes its toll emotionally on people. Um, definitely have seen that. So, Right. And you're dealing with that with the people that you work with and are around you yeah. with that ebb and flow of the emotions, the instability. I'm just wondering if you notice if we have this, larger scale as part of the regular population, instability, um, uncertainty, heightened emotional state, the fatigue, and then you have an emergency to respond to, you know, an emergency to respond to in your team that's already a heightened emotional state, but people are coming into that feeling maybe emotionally fatigued. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an issue? Absolutely. Um, this is something I've uh, I've thought about it just a little bit, but I, I mean, myself feeling a little bit burned out um, from just this sort of ongoing, the relentlessness of this, this event. Um, but looking at what would an emergency response do to me or, or my team at this point psychologically? Um, and I think realistically, uh, kind of what I've settled on at this time, unless somebody can, can sort of show me differently, is just monitoring that, um, that time time on the tools, so to speak. So rotating my EOC stat. If, if we did have to set up our EOC, um, looking at ways to try and decrease the amount of time rather than running 12 hour shifts, you know, can I, can I drop that and keep it, you know, maybe at a more manageable eight hour shift for people? Can we bring in a third mm -hmm. layer to, to offset or something like that? Can we create a ro rotation where, where people do get some of that time away and how quickly can we maybe transition from emergency uh, response into recovery where we can kind of take it and hand it over to the projects group and let them run with it so that we don't fatigue any one particular group. Um, so I haven't sort of formalized that process, but in the back of mind, there's that awareness that, you know, one more thing could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Having said that, 
sometimes a change of scenery isn't a bad thing. So maybe being able to almost forget COVID for a week to deal with another emergency event would almost be refreshing for some people just to not talk about COVID anymore. So I'm not sure how it would go, but that that's what I'm in my mind as, as, as the guy who would run the EOC, I would be keeping an eye on that and making sure that uh, I'm just watching my staff. Cause I know again, people are a little more fragile than they typically would be at this point. So. Right. Right. And Dr. Quinton from um, the UK, who runs a large hospital in Guernsey, which is an island um, in the UK, he mentioned very, very clearly when I was speaking to him recently that actually the biggest issue, the biggest challenge is managing people's workload and the extra responsibilities that they've had in the hospital because people need to do their normal job and parts of that have been taken away, which is part of the instability as well as their personal lives. And then having to take on the care to such a greater ex extent uh, with people in roles that they don't normally do. And like you said, the protracted nature of it. So that's um, that certainly sounds like a challenge which many um, many managers, many leaders are facing at the moment. So how are you caring for yourself? Um, <laughs> probably, you know, the, the nice thing is here in Manitoba, our winters are very cold, but but summers here is is sort of arriving now. So the ability to get outside and. Uh, mm. um, one thing I've I've started doing and and started doing kind of end of last year is uh, hopefully nobody from work is watching this video. Um, when I come home, we work four tens now, so we work ten hour shifts four days a week, um, and then the sites shut down Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So one of the things I've started doing is is I have a personal cell phone and I have a work cell phone, and of course, being the guy that looks after the site and the emergency systems, if there's ever an emergency, they will call me on my personal cell phone. It's it's set up to call both. So when I get home, I put my work phone away and I just, I don't look at it for the weekend and I make sure that's, that's time I can spend with the family and a chance just to get away. I don't watch the news. I mean, unless somebody gets a hold of me and says, Hey, did you hear this thing? And then I'll go and check it out. But I, I, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, that can wait till Monday morning. And yeah, Monday mornings are a scramble for me because there's a chance to quickly catch up on what happened over the weekend, maybe new rules that came out. Um, but I recognize that as we're into this thing for a while, nothing is changing that quickly even even a new set of rules or regulations say further locking things down I, I i can take a day to make sure that we're compliant with that i don't have to be you know on the cutting edge anymore so i've allowed myself to kind of blunt that a little bit over the weekend and just disconnect from it um again being a three-day weekend is, is fortunate um i get that extra day kind of in there um, yeah, that's that's what I've done. That's made the biggest difference. And again, now that the sun is here, getting outside, getting some vitamin D, going for walks, riding my motorcycle, whatever that might be, um, all that sort of helps just kind of forget about work for a little while and, and not sit and dwell on it, not take it home with me as much. So. Well, Jay, that sounds like a really good investment of your time to get away, try to disconnect and be fully present with your family and nature. Sounds yeah. like a good strategy. Jay, really want to thank you for your time. It's been great connecting with you again, nearly an entire year later. So everyone, we want to thank um, Jay, uh, an emergency preparedness uh, program manager in Canada. Jay, is there anything that you'd like to share with us just before we wrap up and finish? Um, no, I just uh, I just want to encourage everyone out there to to hang in there. I know this has been a long slog for so many people and, and, you know, my heart goes out to uh, people in our industry. 
number of friends that have talked about wanting to be just done and, and quit and go back to something simpler and not have, you know, the stress. So definitely uh, feeling for people out there and, and uh, yeah, just stay strong. There's, there's lots of opportunity. Uh, I think that will come out of this. Certainly lots of research opportunities, things that I've, you know, myself have been wondering, it'd be interesting to see a study on this. So for a lot of the people coming mm -hmm. through the schooling system, you really have your pick of sort of research topics that you can pull out of this and a wealth of data to pull from worldwide data that you can pull from. So on, on, on that side, I would say this, uh, these are unprecedented times and, and uh, there could be some really neat opportunities coming out of this. So I think if we can stay the course uh, for the next little while that, that uh, the, the outfall out of this could be very beneficial to the industry. So. Great. Well, Jay, thank you for the work that you're doing. Hope you get some opportunity to enjoy the sunshine and soak up the vitamin D. Have Thanks. a great day. Thanks. You too.